You are listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week, we continue our study on the identity, practices, and purpose of the church with a series we are calling The Church. With this week's message, here's Shepherding Pastor Joe Cook. Well, if you grew up with siblings, you got brothers and sisters, or if you have children that have siblings, or for that matter, if you've just ever babysat children with their brothers and sisters, you may have learned something like I'm going to tell you that it's not going to be a shock to you. They don't always get along. <laughs> I have a sister who's eight years older than me, and that's the only, only sibling I have. And by the time I was about five or six, my sister was of the age to babysit. And she took on that challenge. And at about that same time, I took on the challenge to make that as difficult a job as I could possibly do. I have all kinds of stories that the family has shared from time to time. I woke her up with a water gun one morning. Uh, Allegedly, I'm not admitting to this, allegedly I set my gerbils free in her room one time. That's not been proven. I have no clear memory of it. Uh, And one of the stories that they love to tell is I always wanted my cowboy boots on as a little boy. And when I needed help getting them on, I couldn't get them on. And my sister would help me put them on. But I learned if I scrunched up my toes, it made her job harder. Well, I love that. And she found out if she took the other boot and hit me on the head, it made my toes release. (laughs) So we worked things out sooner or later. It's not unusual for people not to get along, and for children especially, even siblings. And sometimes our parents, and maybe you as parents have done that, would step into that situation and they go, Joe, I want you to apologize to your sister. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not a recommendation. It's a command. And you know, I would apologize. You may have done this, and it was very sincere. I'm sorry. You know, kind of like that. And then they go, now you forgive your brother. I forgive you. You know, very heartfelt, right? Now, is that really what the parent's heart is after? No. The idea is, yes, we expect you to obey us and apologize, but to obey from the heart is the goal. We want them to reach an understanding that's deeper than just mechanical obedience. And yet, at that time, it's still important for there to be a command. The title of our message this morning is Her Ordinances, and and Lance explained really well last week the the female pronoun, the reason we have that representing the church, is the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. And so the her in our sermon uh, title this morning is the church, and ordinances, well that word means a command. Let's look at the dictionary definition of it. It says an ordinance. It's an authoritative decree or direction. And in a short term, it's an order, right? Expect you to do it. On that day, the king signed three ordinances. So when you, when you see that phrase, you're like, okay, this is something we're, we're expected to do. But Jesus did something wonderful when he came to earth. He began to teach that God in heaven was like a good, loving father. And he taught us to even address him as father. And as with all good fathers and all good mothers, a good parent, when a command is given, he didn't just want mechanical obedience. In fact, that was one of the issues that he was coming to to transform is there was this outward following of him, but there wasn't an inward understanding. Now, the ordinances that we're going to look at this morning are two very specific ones that we practice, and they are open ordinances. In other words, they are public displays of things that we do. 
If you were here during the connecting hour, we call it the family hour when we do this, everyone gathered down at the chapel and we dedicated children and then we had baptisms. We do that two or three times a year. And then last week, if you were here, we had the Lord's Supper. These are the two ordinances, the two orders that we're going to talk about this morning. And what I want us to walk away with today is I want us to walk away with more of a heart understanding as we look at these two commands that have been given to us. But first, let's just begin by seeing that they are, in fact, things we're expected to do. These are some of Jesus' last words to his disciples in Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Now, as you look at that and you just look at the context of the paragraph, it's not a suggestion. It's not a recommendation. And that word make that I have underlined in the Greek grammar, it's in the imperative mood. It's a command. In other words, it's not a suggestion. It's not a recommendation. Jesus is saying when you go out and make disciples and notice what one of the things you do, you baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. If you were with us last hour, when they would take the child or take the person underneath the waters, they would say these words, we baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So it's not a suggestion. It's something that he wants us to do. Last week, we observed communion or the Lord's Supper. We have this command from 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul recounts what Jesus did in the, in the Gospels. Jesus said, this is my body. And he held up a piece of bread and he broke it. This is what we usually use, something like this, small piece of bread. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And then he took a cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this and as often as you do, drink it and do so in remembrance of me. That word do, the letter, the word do there, it's also an imperative, not a suggestion. These are things that our Savior, who died for us, who these elements, these ordinances point to, he wants us to do those things. But remember, the goal in all of this is not just mechanical uh, obedience where we just go through the motions. No, there, there's a verse I found just the other day, and I didn't have time to get it into a slide. But Romans 6 says this. This is Paul speaking. He's praising the believers in Rome. Verse 17 Thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become, and here's the phrase, obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed. That's the goal, not mindless obedience. The goal is to obey from the heart. So this morning, we're going to take each of these ordinances, and we're going to talk about why we observe them the way we do. Okay, so a little history first. Now, maybe you've recognized and maybe you're from a different denomination or a different tradition in your past, and maybe you're just familiar with church history, but one of the things you would know is that baptism is something that's been debated. Uh, who do we baptize? How often do we baptize? How do we baptize? Do we sprinkle? Do we pour water? Do we immerse? All of these debates throughout 2,000 years of church history. And what we would say to you is even though Bible-believing, God-fearing people have come to a different place, 
we, we're not here to make them look like fools or make them look like they have evil intent. Our goal is not to dismantle what others believe, but to tell you why we do things the way we do them here at Grace Church. So that's the, that's the thing that I want you to have in your mind. We're not going to try to go through every variance and every option that there is with regard to baptism or communion, but simply to present biblical support for why we do things the way we do. So baptism, did it begin with John the Baptist? You may be familiar with his, his name. And the answer is no, it didn't begin with him. If you know anything about the Old Testament or Jewish tradition, they had multiple forms of baptism, of immersion. One of them was just for ritual purity. If you'd come in contact with a dead body or something that was unclean, you would have to go through some type of ritual purification. If you were a Gentile and you heard the message that God had given to Abraham and to Moses and to the Jews, and you said, I want in on that, I want to be a part of this family, this, these believers and followers of Yahweh, then part of your conversion would involve a baptism. And the Jews would have special pools. They didn't call them baptistries, they called them mikvahs. And in the mikvah, they would have flowing water because they, they believed you need to be baptized in living water, water that was moving. So their baptisms had multiple purposes. And then John the Baptist shows up. John the Baptist shows up, and he's baptizing people in this muddy river, the River Jordan. And he's calling people to come into the waters and be baptized as he preaches about this one who's coming, about this kingdom that's coming. And Paul tells us what John's baptism was about. In Acts 19, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. So uh, Paul is telling us very clearly, what was, what was John's baptism about? It was about repentance. Well, what does repentance mean? It can be a tricky theological word. The word in and of itself means a change of mind. But remember back to our illustration, what's the Father's goal? It's never just, just never mental ascent. He wants something that goes deeper. He wants a heart attitude change. The, the, John the Baptist was telling them, there's someone coming. There's a Messiah coming, and he's going to look different than you expect him to. Charles Ryrie helps us with this word, uh, repentance, when he writes, repentance means a genuine change of mind that affects the life in some way. Like other significant theological terms, it must be defined specifically by asking a further question, namely, change your mind about what? John the Baptist was saying, change your mind about what you're expecting the Messiah to be like. They were expecting the Messiah to come in with a sword blazing and to take Rome out, and they had a suffering servant that showed up. John says you need to change your mind. It was a baptism of repentance. So that's a different type of baptism, different than some of the ones in the Jewish history, different than the conversion from Jew, Gentile to Jew, and then you have John's baptism. And then John said, there's something else coming. He said this, I have baptized you with water, but he, that one who's coming, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now notice the contrast. John baptizes with water, but this one who's coming is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. That's a different kind of baptism. So do you see when we say baptism, we refer to a whole lot of different things. And last hour, we baptized people in our baptistry down at the chapel, and that was something different. So we, let's try to get some of these things clarified. Let's start with their understanding of this Holy Spirit baptism, which is the most unique one 
and it's the most essential one. Jesus said this to his disciples in Acts 1. He's resurrected, he's about to ascend, and he says to them, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to stay and wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, this is the day that we refer to as Pentecost. Our series that we're in is about the church. When you go to Acts 2 and you read about the disciples who were in the upper room, they were singing, they were praying, they were worshiping God, and the Holy Spirit fell from heaven and entered their heart never to leave again. Each one of those who had placed their faith in Christ received the Spirit of the living God, and we consider that day when the big C church was born. Without the Spirit... You're not part of the big C church. That's the baptism that is the most critical. Paul said this in Romans 8, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So which one is the most important one? It's the spirit baptism. That's the key. That's the one we want to make sure we've participated in. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians, for just as the body is one, has many members, all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. He continues, for in one spirit, notice that, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And I'm going to leave that up. That was shocking. If you were in the first century and you were a Jewish person and you've been paying attention, you would have read that line and you would have went, whoa, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, you're saying we're all going to receive one spirit, we're all going to be the same? Yes. So this capital C church, it's a big deal. When you and I place our faith in Christ, we receive the spirit of the living God. It connects us to every believer and every quarter, every place on the earth. It connects us to the believers in India, in Russia, in the North Pole, in the South Pole, South America, North America, Africa, wherever there's a believer who's placed their faith in Christ. We can look at them. They may have different ways of doing things, but we can say they're our brother. They're our sister. Today, we might make a different list. We might say, if you've been baptized in this body, we're all the same. Whether you're Republican or Democrat, rich or poor, slave or free, we, we might have different lists of things that we argue about. But understand this. When a person has placed their faith in Christ and they receive the Spirit... They are our brother, and they are our sister. So the spirit baptism is a big deal. So maybe you're asking the question, Joe, why did we walk down the hall last hour and put people in water baptism? What's that baptism about? Well, I'm glad you asked, and I'm going to tell you a story. Later today, I would encourage you to go and read this narrative. The narrative is in Acts 10, and it's a story about something that happened to the apostle Peter if you have been familiar with the book of Acts, one of the things you'll start to discover is it's a book of transition. Things are changing. The disciples, they're like you and I. It takes them a while sometimes for things to sink in. And the Lord and the Holy Spirit are leading them through some things. One day, Peter is waiting for lunch. He's a little hungry. If you go and read the story, it'll tell you he was hungry. He was waiting for lunch. And he fell into a trance. And the Lord gave him a vision of a sheet coming down, and there were all these animals in it. There were lizards, and there were pigs, and there... Now, 
those were things that Jewish guys weren't supposed to be eating. And the spirit said to Peter, kill and eat. And he's like, no, 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 no. I don't eat that stuff. Three times this came down. Three times he had this vision. And each time he was told to kill and eat. But then there was an important statement. Peter, do not call unclean what I have called clean. And then he said, Peter, there's some guys coming. They're going to knock on the door and they're going to ask you to go with them. I want you to go and I don't want you to hesitate to go. And sure enough, some men showed up, knocked on the door, and they said, Peter, will you come with us? And Peter said, God told me to. Where are we going? He said, well, we're going to go down here to a guy named Cornelius' house. Wait a minute, Cornelius, that's a Gentile name. Yes, it's a Gentile name. I'm supposed to go with you. Okay, I'm going to go into the house of a Gentile. That's going to make me unclean. Wait a minute. God said don't call unclean what I've called clean. Not only was he a Gentile, he's a Roman. Not only was he a Roman, he's a Roman soldier. And Peter is going to have all this swimming around in his head. But Peter goes. And here's the thing that takes place. He goes in. He crosses the threshold of a Roman soldier. He looks at his family and he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. He tells them that the God, that God came to earth as a man, that he died for their sins, that he was crucified, dead, buried, he's resurrected, and he offers salvation to all who would believe. And then the most amazing thing happened. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Whew. Right at that moment, those Gentile Romans heard the gospel and they came to faith in Christ. They've not been baptized, probably didn't know who John the Baptist was, didn't know anything about ritual purity. They've placed their faith in Christ, and they've now received the spirit baptism. And what we see, and the reason I want to take you to this narrative, is this narrative sets the course for the next 2,000 years. This is going to be the way that these things take place, but there's something important that happens next. In Acts 10... Peter says, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So here's what we've got. We've got a group of Gentiles. They've received the Spirit. And remember what a big deal I made about it? That's the important one. Right then, if something had happened to them, if they had died right then, they're still our brothers and sisters in Christ. One day when we get to heaven, all who have placed our faith in Christ, we're going to meet Cornelius and the people that were gathered there. But Peter said, we need to still water baptize them. Do you remember Peter was at the place of the Great Commission and Jesus said, it was a command, I want you to go make disciples, baptizing them. So Peter's like, this is something we're supposed to do. So here are the principles that we extrapolate from that narrative, from the teaching of the New Testament, from the teaching and commands of Christ, and we're going to break it into three categories, and here they are. Why do we practice water baptism? For identification, for obedience, and for fellowship. And I'm really excited about these three things because they overlap as we go through them, and it's going to reveal to us the heart of the Father. So let's begin with identification. Now, at the very basic level, why we understand water baptism as identification is the word baptizo. That's the Greek word that we get our word baptized from. Baptizo simply means to dip, to immerse, to dunk, we might say. The, the Titanic is immersed into the Atlantic Ocean, never to come out again. 
but it became a technical term for certain industries. The dyeing industry, you may have heard that example given before. You take a white cloth and you dip it into purple dye. You've baptized it. You pull it out. What kind of cloth is it? It's a purple cloth. Is it ever going to be a white cloth? No, it's a purple cloth. It's been identified to that with which it was immersed in. There's another industry, the pickling industry. They found a recipe that was written in 200 B.C. That's a long time ago. People have been eating pickles a long time. And in that recipe, it would say you baptize the cucumber into the vinegar. Now think about that process. It was a cucumber, but once it goes in, when it comes out, it's no longer called a cucumber. It's called a pickle, right? You see, when you're baptized into something, you're baptized into it. You take on its identity. Romans 6 says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death? I'm going to stop there. If you watched the baptisms earlier, they would take the person and they would say, buried with Christ, and they would hold them under. Not this long, I promise. They would raise them back up, and that symbolized his resurrection because Paul continues, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life identification. I'd ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 3. There's another reason that we have this idea of identification. I think this is probably my favorite one. In chapter 3 of Matthew, we have these early chapters of the gospel, and John the Baptist, he's down there in the Jordan River baptizing people, and he looks, and here comes Jesus. Jesus is his cousin. He knows who Jesus is. He knows that Jesus is the one that is to come, the, the Lamb of God, who is coming to save the world. And Jesus comes in in verse 13 of chapter 3. We read this. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Did you know that Jesus was baptized? And John the Baptist, when he saw him coming, John the Baptist would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And you come to me? John the Baptist was confused. He's like, wait, wait, wait a minute, because he knew what his baptism was about. His baptism was about repentance. His baptism was about changing your mind. He's like, Jesus, you don't need to change your mind. What are you doing here? And look at how Jesus answered. Jesus answered him, let it be now, for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus said, he said, John, this is the right thing to do. At that word, John John submitted to his wishes, and Jesus went into the water, and he was baptized. And you know that theologians and scholars have been debating for 2,000 years why Jesus was baptized? What did it mean? What does it represent? And I think the best answer comes down to this idea of identification. Look at what one man wrote about this. If Messiah went to provide righteousness for sinners... He must be identified with sinners. It was therefore the will of God for him to be baptized by John in order to be identified. There he says the real meaning of the word baptized with sinners. Do you see what he's saying? Jesus, the holy, righteous Son of God, he's going to step down into the waters to be identified with the unrighteous. He did that because he said, that's the right thing for me to do. And now we're commanded, we're invited to step down into those waters 
as unrighteous to be identified with the righteous one. It's an exchange life. That's what we're invited into. We get to exchange our unrighteous life for his righteous life. And that leads us to our second idea here. When John says, I mean, when Jesus says this to John, look back with me at 15. Notice the reason that he gave. Why should we do this? Because it's the right thing to do, John. It's according to righteousness. Where did Jesus learn about righteousness? He learned about it from his father. His father is the standard of righteousness. We read this in John 14, 31. And I'll tell you, in your, uh, in your bulletins and on the U version, it says 14, 34. There's not a John 14, 34. It's John 14, 31. But I want you to know where this verse is because it's beautiful. But I do as the father has commanded me. And notice why. So that the world may know that I love the Father. Jesus came to earth, and in every step of his life, he was obeying the Father. And when we ask Jesus, if we say, why did you do that? He said, because I want everybody to know that I love the Father. And you see what he just did? Remember our story from the beginning? We don't, God doesn't, a good father doesn't just want mechanical obedience. What does he want? Obedience from the heart. That's what Jesus gives. He said, it pleases my Father for me to be baptized and identified with sinners. And that's what he's inviting us into. When, when you walk into the baptistry, when you, are, when you give yourself over to that, you're publicly uh, confessing to the world, I love Jesus. That's why we do it. Identification, obedience from the heart. And then the final one, we do it for fellowship. Look with me again at John... Uh, Look with me again here at verse uh, 16. Let's read this, continue reading this in John and Matthew 3. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. This is my Son. He obeyed the Father and it pleased him, and his response was, That's my Son. He's mine. He, God the Father identifies with him. God the Father pours out his, plis, his pleasure and his praise upon him. And when we come to this idea of fellowship, notice the fellowship that's taking place between God the Son and God the Father. And what I want you to see is in John 15 we read this. You are my friends if you do what I command you. This is Jesus speaking. It's a strange definition for friendship. Unless, of course, it's the words from the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Savior of the world. He says, you're my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Did you catch that last part? You're no longer servants. When you stop just going through mechanical obedience and you obey from the heart, your relationship is transformed. No longer are you this immature child who has to be forced to say, I'm sorry. Now you're this mature child who gets it. You've connected the dots. Imagine if you would, you see those same two kids that were arguing a few years later and you hear they're having a disagreement and you walk into the room and before you as a parent or a caregiver can make them apologize to one another. You hear one of them say, hey, sister, I want you to know I was wrong, and I, I'd like for you to forgive me. And you hear the sister say, you know what? It's okay. I forgive you. 
A parent's heart, they get it. Well done. Can you hear the Father, his pleasure when Jesus obeys and he obeys from the heart? When we had our people baptized, when they went into the water and they came out, I can only imagine that in heaven Jesus was going, that's my son. That's my daughter. Because I publicly identified with them. He stepped into the waters for the unrighteous. And now the unrighteous have stepped into the water and they proclaim to the world, I love Jesus and I obey him from the heart. It's a whole new level of fellowship and relationship. So those are the three reasons why we baptize with water. Is this great opportunity we have to emulate Jesus, to honor him, to obey him, and to enter into a new type of fellowship with him. If you're here today and you've never been baptized, you're a believer in Christ, and you would like to know more about it, we would invite you to talk to one of us as a pastor or an elder. We would love to talk to you about that process. We interview everyone before they are baptized. This is why we don't baptize infants. The type of baptism that we practice is called believer's baptism. We sit down with everyone before they, they sign up to, to go through the baptistry, and we talk to them to make sure, no matter how old they are, that they understand what they're doing, why they're doing it, and what it means. So if you would like to know more about that, we would love to visit with you. So that's our first ordinance. Let's talk about the second one. Let's talk about communion. If you were here last week, Reggie led us through this. We do this regularly where baptism is sort of a once-in-your-life type thing where you get to, for that one time, you get to stand before a group of people and say, I stand, I love Jesus. When we come to the Lord's Supper, it's something we do monthly here. Some churches do it more often. Some churches do it less often. We're not told in Scripture. We don't have a prescription of how often that we're supposed to do it. But to walk through this, I'm going to invite you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where we looked at before, but turn there with me. And we're going to look at a couple of things that are there that we missed before. So first of all, what we're going to do is talk a little bit about the history of the Lord's Supper. Real quickly, what was taking place on that night before Jesus was crucified, is they were participating in the Passover. Passover was a meal that they used to celebrate when God called them out of Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt, and he's called them out and set them free. They are now on their way to the promised land, and they, they celebrate this Passover meal to celebrate God's deliverance of them. And so the, Jesus and the disciples were celebrating that together, but Jesus transforms it. He holds up that bread and he breaks it, and he says, this bread, that's, they would have thought formerly the Passover bread, he said, this bread now represents my body, and it's broken for you. And then he took what we understand to be the third cup, okay? He took the third cup, which in Jewish tradition was the cup of redemption. If you were at our Seder dinner last year, you would have heard uh, Ron Allen walk us through that, held up that third cup of redemption, and he said, now... This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus transformed that historical feast into what we now practice as communion, as the Lord's Supper. So why do we do it on a regular basis? Well, here's four reasons. Remembrance, proclamation, obedience, and fellowship. Those are the four things that we want to walk through. First of all, let's talk about remembrance. If you look at the two verses that highlight it there in verse 24 and 25, it states it very clearly. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. There's the word, remembrance. Jesus says, I want you to remember this. 
And then he says the same thing about the cup. And when you think about it, if you're a good teacher, one of the things you learn as a good teacher is if you want people to remember things, involve all five of their senses. We hold this. We touch it. You can smell it. You can taste it. You can hear the words. You see it. All five senses. This is important to the Savior. He wants us to remember. And what do they represent? This represents blood. This represents his body that was broken and bruised and torn apart for us. And he says, remember it. And all five senses are involved in it. Then he says it's for proclamation. Look at verse 26 with me. In verse 26 we read, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim it. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, who were we proclaiming it to? Maybe you'd look around and say, Joe, I think everybody here has been coming to church. Well, you know what? Sometimes we have visitors. Sometimes we have people that maybe are less familiar with this. But you know who we have every time we do it? We have children in the room. A few years ago, our elders made an a intentional decision that we would start keeping our children up to a certain age in here with us. And they did that for a couple of reasons. One, we think it's important for children to stand side by side with their parents, with their grandparents, with their family, and see their family worship God corporately. This little C church that we are here gathered here at Grace Church, we're a community, we're a family, and it's important for us to come together and sing praises to the Lord. That's one reason that we wanted the children in here. Another reason, though, is we celebrate the Lord's Supper. If you noticed last week, they always leave after we take these elements. And you know why we want that to happen? Is we want them to be curious. We want them to ask questions. In fact, this was part of God's plan with the Passover meal. If you go back in Exodus, you read this. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You'll say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt. When he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. You see, this ceremony, this this outward demonstration of these elements of what they mean. We want the kids to be watching you and we want them to ask questions. And it gives you the opportunity when you get home and they say, Mom, Dad, what, why were we doing that? And why didn't I get to participate? Then you get to sit down with them and you get to say, well, let me tell you what those things mean. And let me get to tell you what the process is of, for the people who get to participate in it. It's significant. Both of, these, both of these ordinances are outward manifestations of inward realities. We want to proclaim his death, his burial, and his resurrection as often as we meet and do that. Obedience. We, we've talked about this. He says, do this, do this. Not an option, not a recommendation. He wants us to do it. And it's very serious. Look at verse 27 with me. This is a warning. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of Christ. Let a person examine himself then so that they eat of the bread and drink of, when, before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Last week when Reggie was leading us through this and each time that we do it we often we we always intend to give you a time to talk to the Lord. Do you have any unconfessed sin? Is there anything you need to talk to the Lord about before you take these elements and put them into your body? 
These elements represent something that's very significant, the, the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf. So it's a very sober thing. And then lastly, it's this whole idea of fellowship. In the first century, to eat with someone was a big deal. They called it table fellowship. This is why Jesus got in so much trouble for eating with tax collectors and sinners. It's why Peter got in trouble when he got back from, from the centurion's house. And you can go and read about that again in Acts 10 and 11. Like, hey, what'd you do? You see, when you eat with someone, it's, it was a big deal because they, were, they understood that you're sharing the blessing of the host with all those that you're sharing the meal with. When we do it here, we're looking around this room and we're in fellowship with each other. That's the goal. That's what, that's what the dinner means. That's what this... This ordinance that we do outwardly means. So, Joe, you may be asking me, Joe, why, why such seriousness? Why such heaviness? Well, think about what they represent. They're sort of sterilized in our world. We have little cellophane, little plastic cups of cellophane and these little wafers, and, and we have a cross on the wall that's got clean edges. But understand this, both baptism and the Lord's Supper point to a very graphic scene there's two things we should always have in our mind when we participate in either one of these. When we come to baptism, we need to recognize that it's death that's being pictured and resurrection that's being pictured. We need to remember that this represents blood, that this represents a broken body. Here's the reality. I have such a bad case of sin in my flesh Somebody had to die for me. Do you know that about yourself? Have you looked at your flesh? Have you seen what you're capable of? The jealousies, the anger, the temper, all of those things. Our condition was so bad, God couldn't just go, oh, it's okay. Jesus came and died because that's what, it, that's what was required. Death was required to deliver us from the condition of our, our sinfulness. And so that's the heavy, heavy part but then there's this celebratory part that every time we take of these elements, every time we visit the baptistry and we watch someone be baptized, the other thing that we should just be screaming out loud to us is the voice of God saying, this is how much I loved you. That's how much I love you. I died for you. I shed my blood for you. My body was broken for you. That's what these things mean. Every time we participate, it's God saying, I love you. Over and over, month after month, event after event where we're down at the chapel, I love you. God wants the world to know, I've so loved the world that I've given my only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We take these two ordinances very, very seriously because they point to the biggest event in the history of the world. If you're here today and you've never placed your faith in Christ, you've never heard him saying to you, I love you, and you're saying, I want that, I, I want the life that he's offered, then you, just like Cornelius, as soon as you believe, as soon as you place your faith in what he did for you, just like that, you're born into the kingdom, and we would invite you to come and share that with us. Let us pray with you. Let us talk to you about what it's like to be baptized. Let us talk to you about the next time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, what that would mean for you. We invite you to do that.
Each time we do this, the Lord is saying, I love you. I pray that you would hear his voice to you today. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.